Hey, thanks for tuning in again to another special edition of Christ Alone Podcast. Uh, this is week five in the Bible study that we are doing, uh, just a small group of us, uh, six weeks uh, study of the meta-narrative is what I'm calling it, uh, six weeks through uh, a biblical study of, of redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Like I said, this is the fifth week of it, so it made it the third week in discussing redemption. We'd covered creation, we'd covered fall, we'd covered redemption, uh, the Old Testament looking forward to Christ was week one of redemption. Rede week two of redemption was uh, redemption fulfilled in Christ. And then this week is redemption three, uh, moving forward or into the church age and the already and the not yet. So uh, we went long this week, so we got about an hour and seven minutes of content to wade through. But uh, thanks for listening. If you uh, ran across this by accident because you're a follower of Christ Alone, the podcast, um, and you'd like any more information on the rest of the content or anything like that, please just get a hold of me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com backslash Dolacek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. And I'd love to talk with you more about uh, the content we're discussing and, and Anything related to the gospel or Jesus or anything else, really. But love to hear from you and get your thoughts. Thanks, and enjoy the Bible study. The question you ask will be recorded. So be, be informed like one of those phone calls when you call in. This will be recorded for quality assurance. <laughs> so we have, this is part three of uh, redemption and redemptive history. We've talked creation, fall, Redemption in the Old Testament, right? And then redemption with Christ last week. Um, talking about um, the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ and Christ's work. But one of the things that I always want to stress, a good question when you talk with people about faith, and it's one of the kind of the go-to ones that I bring up with people who are unbelievers or kind of don't, or just agnostic, they don't necessarily have a defined faith, is just kind of, what do you do with Jesus? What I mean, Jesus is not... It, we sit around here and we talk about kind of theology and abstract theories and how does this all work out and the problem of evil and what did Christ really do and we're going to get into then next week how this is all going to pan out and they're all kind of abstract theories but it, it, it takes on different um, flavor or different urgency when you get down to the issue of just what are you going to do with Jesus? There's this guy who really lived and he worked miracles, raised people from the dead, healed people. He taught like no one else taught, um, walked on water. I mean, did all these amazing things, uh, uh, cast demons out of people, just phenomenal. Swore, uh, promised that he would die and be killed at the hands of sinful men and raised three days later. And then... He did it. And this guy comes back to life, is seen by more than 120 witnesses, and, and then ascends into heaven. So with that, this is not just some fable that even though we're going through the meta-narrative, right, this, the overarching story of redemption, it's not like we're sitting down and reading uh, a Disney fairy tale. Jesus is this real person who really lived and all these things happened to him. So then what do you do with this real Jesus. What do you do with that? 
the reality that he claimed to be God. And so we aren't allowed to just kind of, well, that's your thoughts, these are my thoughts. No, this was a real dude who claimed these things. What do we do with it? So I'm trying to, and I want to, when we go through this big narrative of Scripture, the overarching story of Scripture, that it doesn't come across, you know, it can kind of come across sometimes as, well, isn't this an interesting storyline? But, and it is, but this is also reality, right? This is, Jesus was a real man who really rose from the dead, which is what we did not get much into last week, and I kind of want to take some time to look at that. Old business there in your outline is redemption accomplished. Jesus goes to the cross, right? Dies the death that we all deserve as sinners and is resurrected as a... um, as kind of God's seal of approval of this has been accomplished. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a very familiar passage. Once you get into it, you'll recognize it um, because it's kind of the, um, well, we get into all of the words of, uh, when you get into uh, taking communion and stuff like that, these are kind of familiar uh, passages here. But 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 1 through 5, and this is the way, if anyone asks you ever what the gospel is, this is the most concise passage we have of what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Verses 3 through 5. Someone can read that there. Anyone? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So we have this very concise, and what are, what are the elements here of the gospel that Paul has for the Corinthians? What are the elements of the gospel there in verses 3 and 4? He died. He died. What did he die for? For our sins. For our sins. It's prophesied where? In the scriptures. In the scriptures. He was buried. He was buried. Did, he just, did he just swoon? There's a, a, one of the theories of Islam is that there was a swooning that Jesus passed out. He fainted uh, on the cross. He didn't really die. Yeah, I don't know if that's if that's where they go or not. But right, we have the spear in the side of Jesus, where the water and the blood flows out from Jesus, and they wrap him in what would have been ninety pounds of linens and spices because we didn't embalm back then. So you just wrapped in linens, put a bunch of spices on it, you salted them and spice. I don't know if you salted them or not, but you put a bunch of like <laughs> frankincense and myrrh and whatever, all kinds of spices on them. And then you wrapped more linen on them and then carted them off into the tomb where he laid uh, for three days, according to the scripture. And so, I mean, if, if he had just passed out, the spear into the side, the wrapping in the linens, and he's, he was dead. Jesus was really dead. He, he was buried. And the, but... He was really dead and really buried, and then he also really rose. And there's a really important part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we don't have a Savior who's dead, uh, that, you know, he just died. And, well, I hope that was efficient. I hope that was effective. 
he dies, and he's it's such a righteous death, he can't stay dead. Jesus resurrects from the grave. I mean, that's that's our Easter story, right? Then we have we show up on Easter Sunday and we say he is risen, and the priest will say back, he is risen indeed. Why, why three days? Well, it's the, by the Jewish calendar, and you're asking because it doesn't seem like three. Or why was he three days? Well, there's there's lots of theories of why he's three days. Um, there's some Jewish kind of um, thought that it takes three days for the spirit to leave the body. And so there's weird things. Like with Lazarus, they're there uh, mourning him those so many days after his death. But I don't know why the three days. Jonah is a sign of Jesus. He's in the belly of the fish three days. And so um, I don't know if there's a special significance, I guess, to the three days, other than that's just what's prophesied. It's clear when it's three days, it's clear in the Jewish mind and in all of ours that he's seriously dead. I mean, it's not like three minutes or 30 minutes. He's, he's three days. Um, I thought your question was, it wasn't really three days. Jesus is crucified on Friday and he comes out of the tomb when? Sunday morning. How many days is that? <laughs> not not a whole way around. It's just Friday to Sunday. Oh, Friday. Yes. Well, how does that work? It's a good, yeah, good Friday. It's a good Friday. Friday. So Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. And then Sunday, he, he's risen from the dead. He says, thank you. So we have usually the question when you ask me why three days, usually the question from people is, Friday to Sunday is not three days. That's like one day in the grave. But the Jewish calendar counts sundown to sundown and so friday would count as a day saturday counts as a day and then as the sun comes up sunday is the three days in the tomb according to the jewish calendar that sometimes that can be a contradiction in people's minds of well that's not three days in the tomb and so well not in our calendars but in the jewish calendar the day starts when the sun goes down and any part of a day is counted as a day so anyway and what, what was he doing during that well, that's a fun question because we don't really know, do we? <laughs> do you have, do you want to, you have you have a guess or would you want to? You I've, I've heard you've, you've heard different theories. Oh yeah, descended into hell and he yeah. preached to the lost souls. For Which is in days. and we're, we're going to be right around there. That's right around. If you look in my scriptures, I've got there. I've got First Peter four seven through nineteen. I don't have First Peter three and whatever because that's where that passage is found. That he goes and preaches to the pris the spirits in prison. And uh, so there's lots of theories about it. Um, we don't really know. He doesn't reveal exactly what he's doing down there. There's some idea that, yes, when um, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, there's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that uh, Lazarus sits outside the rich man's gates and begs for the crumbs. The dogs come and lick his sores. He dies and he goes to be in Abraham's bosom. So and there's this place in, in Jewish that, that, that evidently when you would die, the afterlife was Abraham's bosom. And then the rich man dies and he goes to hell. And remember the story as he's saying, hey, send Lazarus over to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish here in the flames. And oh, he says, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers to repent so that they won't come to hell with me and could be with Lazarus. So there's this thought that Jesus, that, that, Old Testament Christians died. I mean, we call them, I'm calling them Christians, but uh, believers in the Messiah from the Old Testament time 
were in a holding pen in Abraham's bosom, and Jesus goes and leads captivity. I, I don't, but those are all speculations. We don't really know. You're quoting from the Apostles' Creed, which we almost, I almost had us read tonight because it says he descended into hell. I mean, he dies and he descended into hell. And, and that's a very controversial statement. Did Jesus really go to hell? Well, many people would say no, that, that, that the hell that he goes into is the cross. He descends into hell. The, the cup of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross Three days in the tomb, he is, I don't know, doing what. <laughs> I didn't know if you had a different... I never thought of that until you said that. What's that? What was he doing? What was he doing? <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, he... I guess in my mind, I just thought he was just laying there dead until God... Yeah, was yeah. Rest, you know? My, my Lutheran background, like the Apostle Creed, we oh, yeah. once a month at least. Oh, yeah. And so you sure. get that thought in your head, descended into hell. Right. And, and I don't think they would even say that he technically goes in like and suffers any sort of, of wrath in that way in hell, that the hell is, is the wrath of God on the cross poured out on him unto death. And then he's three days in the tomb. If he, he, he wakes up there and um, Mary goes and wants to grab hold of him and he says, don't touch me, I've yet to ascend to the Father. Well, what does that mean? You know, there's just, there's some funky things going on there that I don't have all the, I don't know. But they're fun things to think about. Um, but they just, you know, he's in the tomb, we know, three days. And then Easter Sunday, uh, yeah, the stone is rolled back. They show up. He has somehow gone through his grave clothes. So the body that Jesus resurrects into is Different than ours in that he comes through his grave clothes. He's able to walk through walls like uh, the disciples are all locked in together. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up with them. And they're like, they're freaked out because, well, you would be. And so, you know, he's, but he says, give me some fish. And he eats fish. And he says, and Thomas later on, remember doubting Thomas says, I'll only believe I can touch the wounds in his hands and his side. And Thomas feels his wounds. He Jesus still has his wounds in his hands and in his side. And so he has a physical body, but it's a glorified physical body. And, and then eventually we see in Luke 24, this is where I kind of wanted to look at some. Luke 24, we see, instead of just me rambling through the story, I guess, we can read the Bible about it. Um, it's always a good choice. Uh, Luke 24, um, that Jesus in his physical body ascends into and disappears into the clouds. So this is uh, Luke 24 verses, what I have on the outline there, 36 through 53. Let's just read. It's good to read Bible. Let's read that, 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, they were marveled, marveling. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. 44. He said to them, Remember when I was you before, before? 
I said that everything written about me was heaven, everything in the law of Moses, the books of the prophets and the Psalms. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He said to them, It is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that a change of hearts and lives and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, starting at Jerusalem. She's a 48. You are witness of these things. I will send you what my father has promised, but you must stay in Jerusalem until you have received that power from heaven. 50 and 50 through 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So, we read this as real event. Scripture is telling us eyewitnesses account. Luke is written by Dr. Luke, who likely uh, got most of his information from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He also writes the book of Acts, where we see that Luke spends a lot of time with Paul, who had a lot of, and Luke writes this letter to Theophilus, and what Luke does is he goes around and talks to all the eyewitness accounts while they're still alive before they all die and gives this account of what happened. So this is eyewitness testimony of what happened when Jesus resurrects. And he gives this new commission. So um, he gives this commission of that verse 47, repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what your translation, change of heart and life or something. Uh, that's, they're, trying, they're, taking the, they're trying to uh, expand what the, the word there. Metanoeo is the Greek of change of mind is kind of what they're coming off of. But that repentance and the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So Jesus shows up, resurrects. This is just trying to finish up old business, kind of. <laughs> still, and, and, and gives a new commission. He says, here's what's going to happen. Um, repentance and the forgiveness of sin in my name is to be proclaimed throughout all the nations, and then Jesus disappears. <laughs> and so everyone's kind of left standing there thinking, well, we can, we can know, what the, we know what they're thinking. Go back, go to Acts chapter 1. Luke kind of retells where he left off. This is Luke's second letter to Theophilus. I don't know. No one really knows. Likely a rich man who paid Luke a lot of money to go write these accounts. He kind of, I, that's, just, that's the speculation, is that Theophilus bankrolled uh, Luke's uh, travels to get this information and to record it all down. Because he says here in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. But we jump on down here, verse 9, when he said, these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So there's like a clue phone. They're in white robes. This is Acts 1, 10, 11. And they said, these white robes, these angels, these men, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Angels show up, and they say, in the same way Jesus went, 
he's going to come back. And they have this, we saw at the end of Luke 24, he tells him to go do something. He tells him to go to Jerusalem and wait for what? God in one of his forms. And not, a, not a form, one of his persons. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> that was almost, it was almost heresy when I said it that way. I mean, he doesn't have forms, he has persons. Sorry. Uh, Okay, is that, is that all it says in the 24? So if you go up in verse in uh, Acts chapter 1, if you go up to verse 5, um, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he sends them to Jerusalem and they go and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this latter days outpouring, which is where Peter goes into his sermon there in chapter 2. We'll just kind of quickly follow along here. He quotes the prophet Joel that in the last days the Spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters. So, I mean, I, we're trying to fly through that, but there, there's something that provokes a question in us, it should, that, that Jesus is this coming king. He's this coming Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to get rid of sin. He's going to, um, you know, he's the Savior, he shows up, he does his work on the cross, and here we all sit. <laughs> and is sin gone? Is... Oh, I'm like, okay. All right, so sorry. <laughs> is sin gone? No, sin's not gone. Is Jesus ruling in some great... I mean, we don't... What's gone on? There, there's some tension that exists here between Jesus has shown up. He is on the cross. He cries out. It is finished. Gives up his spirit. God gives his stamp of approval by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus shows up, gives his commission, and then he disappears. And so where does that leave us? I mean, that's the question that we're, that's why we're having three parts to redemption because we're saying, where are we now? What's the story? Jesus has done all these things, and and I um, am campaigning or whatever for Jesus has finished the work. Everything that needed to be done to secure man's salvation, Jesus does, but it leaves us in this interesting church age. I mean, it, do you feel the tension of what I'm saying there? Is that just my own made-up tension? It, it brings tension to me that I think of it's fully done on the cross. Jesus has, he is this king. He is God incarnate. And then here we all sit. In sin. In sin, not in victory. Um, yeah. What's up with that? There's, there's some, you know, what is it? You know, we don't have total victory. We aren't in total prosperity. We aren't, we still get sick. We still die. And, and what Jesus came to do is to reverse the curse of Adam. What was the curse on Adam? That if he, surely the day you eat of it, you shall die. Jesus shows up as the second Adam, and he removes the curse of death. Death, is, death dies on the cross. But each and every one of us, if the Lord tarries, if Jesus doesn't come back, which is next week, we die and we rot in the grave. Right? And Eric puts up a tombstone for us. <laughs> so there's this, there's this kind of, 
we live in this interesting time. And what theologians call this is, is the already and the not yet. We're in this church age, which is the already and the not yet. Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. It is not yet fully realized. It's on its way. That's why next week is consummation. It has been it's been, it's been accomplished in every real way that it needs to be, but it's not fully shown yet. Often an example is like D-Day. Are you a war, are you a kind of a war buff or not? You watch History Channel. Yes. That's about it. That, that could, does that count anymore? <laughs> but you know, what D-Day, what happened at D-Day? They, 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 they stormed Normandy, right? And they get at the, you know, the, the United States, the, the Allies get access into Europe. They put their beachhead up. And essentially, at D-Day, we knew we'd won. I mean, we had gotten... We had, we, what's that? Marched to Berlin. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we had the position, there, it, but there were still skirmishes yet. Was the war over? Mm, yeah, but was it over? No. There was a lot yet to go on. They talk about in World War II that there were those islands that the Japanese islands that they had put these bases out, that they would go to these islands years later and find men uh, still like living, because they didn't have radioactives or anything like that, still living as though the war is still going on. They didn't realize that it was already done. They were, they were in this weird place the still, you know, that it was accomplished, but yet not yet there. And, and we as Christians, we live in this interesting time of where, it's already accomplished. The work that needs to be done for our salvation, for the rescue of God's people, has been accomplished. It's not yet fully realized. So that's why Paul says things like uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says these, these, interest, these contradictory things about what is the life of a Christian. 1 Corinthians 6. Oh, that's not right must be 2 Corinthians. Oh yeah, I just I have it in my notes right. I said it wrong. 2 Corinthians 6. There we go. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 6. He's just Paul is on his missionary journeys writing back to the church at Corinth. Um let's read verses 2 through what do I have on there? 2 through 10. For he says, at the acceptable time, I have listened to you and helped you on the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in one's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way through great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, hunger. By purity, knowledge, forbearance, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Truthful speech. What was it just said to me? Through 10. Okay. Truthful speech in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. So Paul has this kind of, he makes nonsense statements here. 
I mean, it's like, what's he talking about? We are, we're treated as imposters, yet are true. As unknown, yet well-known. Well, how can you be unknown and well-known? Well, the, the, con the, the conflict there that he's talking about is that he's, they're unknown to the world, yet to God, well-known. As dying, and yes, they're dying. The apostles are being killed. They're being martyred. They're being persecuted. And behold, we live. They have eternal life in Christ. They're punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. They're in this weird place of, of they already have rejoicing, yet they're sorrowful. That they're in this weird place. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Does that mean that they're TBN prosperity preachers? No. He's talking about rich in God. He's talking about that you have spiritual riches, like the Sermon on the Mount's talking about. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Well, how are they both? And the Christians live in this weird time of where they're having nothing. Paul writes in other places being shipwrecked and suffers lashes all these times and just <coughs> as abounds and has poverty. He knows all of these things. And yet he has nothing, but yet he possesses everything. He, he's in this weird spot as Christians of already not yet. Everything's been accomplished, yet not yet accomplished. So I have two more on there, sojourners. Heirs and waitings. What do you guys think of that? I'm not going to go through those as we're going to the next thing. Sojourner, just like a traveler. You're passing through. I mean, and that's kind of a, a big Christian theme is, is we're, we're sojourners here. We're, we're passing through. This is not our home. Why not just, you know, everything you're talking about, why not just die and get to heaven? Well... Why, why are we battling? Why, why are we so fearful of death? Why do we not want to die? Why do we not want everyone around us not to die? I mean, we're, in the same sense, we're happy to go to heaven because we know it's where we ultimately want to be, but why not just die? That's a good question. Why not be born and die? What's the point of... Why does God not have us be born and die? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, and, and that's where the mission of the church comes in. And there's a passage, I didn't write it down, it's in First Peter where Paul or Peter's talking about this issue of why does God delay? And and you know, and he talks he's talking about why is God slow to do what he wants to do? And he says, God is not slow as some count slowness, but he delays. If if people were born and died, would any of us be here? No. Our parents would our parents wouldn't be here. No one would be here. That there's this tearing that happens in some respect in the mystery and I'm not saying I've got the definitive answer on this by any means. I know. But uh, <laughs> let me answer your question, Melissa. But there is this interesting there is this interesting passion that does say that, that God is delaying the, the full consummation of these things for the salvation of many. And so he's delaying so that the gospel can be go forward and souls can be saved to his, for his own glory. So that at the fullness of time... There is this church, there is this bride of Christ that has been gathered for him. That's the only, I mean, from my understanding of scripture, that's the only explanation that I really have. Now, as far as you asking, why don't we just want to die? Well, that's a question Paul wrestles with himself in Philippians, where he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He says in Philippians chapter, that's still in chapter one, and he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, it's far better. But then he says, but to remain with you all is more necessary on your account. He says that for any, that's where last week I said for your progress and joy in the faith and that Paul stays 
so that the gospel goes forward. So the, really the only answer that we have, or that I can think of, maybe you all come with a better one, I'm all ears, but is that the gospel goes forward and that God is delaying so that people can come to repentance and a bride is made for Christ being the church. So the church is born. You asked a question that I went off on a tirade. So <laughs> did that, what, what is that? Is that kind of what you were thinking or is that? Right. Like why is it a work? Why do you, why do you think, why, I mean, to share the gospel, why aren't we, so why aren't we, that's the issue with, so Jesus already died, and everything's taken care of for us mm -hmm. in heaven, mm -hmm. and why do we have such a struggle in the world with everything when that is the answer? When Jesus is? Jesus is the answer. I mean, think about the people just... And why not spend 24 hours a day preaching? Like, and I know that like you said, spread the word to spread the people. Spread the word and studying the word. And that, that's all he wants us to do. But yet, mm -hmm. we get yelled at if we do it at school. That's <laughs> what we're here. But think about it. Exactly. If everybody concentrated on the love of Jesus versus mm -hmm. the wealth or, you know. And if you did it, then you wouldn't be in a situation where some random person walks in and nice little beer shop. And you're able to right. spread the word from that. Right? I mean, what we yeah, what we see in the gospel is is both of these things going forward. Paul in no way, I mean, you know, he's not talking about doing labor and having your vocation because the other reality is, Eric does need to provide for his family. You guys need to provide for your families by going and having jobs and making money so your kids can grow up so they can eat well. Well, that takes money. We live in a world system that has leaders and governments and all sorts of things, and so. Part of spreading of the gospel is being a good steward of the time that you have. Now, yeah, we do want to be people who are then spreading the gospel. That's why we're here. But one of the ways you spread the gospel is by raising children that love Jesus. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways that we, not to exclude you. <laughs> that's one of the ways we spread the gospel is that we raise children that love Jesus. We, we work constantly. And so, you know, there's multiple ways that the gospel is spread and it and it does mean being faithful at your vocation you know and 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 the work being a good friend being a good neighbor in your local community so that the gospel can be shared you know if you became the kook who just spent all day going around to the door trying to you run out of money <laughs> you, you know and you'd start and the gospel and and pretty soon no one looks at you and thinks boy i wish you'd tell me what's going on with her that's really interesting to me you know it, it, that disappears i mean I think it's a way to use your talents to spread the word too. With vocation? Vocation. Absolutely. That'll well, I mean, put you in that opportunity to reach that one person maybe that needs it. Absolutely. I mean, that's, it, that's an area that I've missed for a long time about how, how we glorify God in being faithful in a vocation. And that, you know, that the, the preacher who stands up on a Sunday morning isn't any more godly or used by God than the guy who, you know, you know, coming up this winter, goes and plows snow all night long. They both honor God by being faithful in the task that's put in front of them. You know, you befriend teaching school at, at Linux, so you can't share the word there, whatever, but you make relationships. You make friends. People, you know, you, you as you are faithful in the vocation, people see what kind of character you have. It opens up doors for other conversations and opportunities. And so there certainly is 
great value in just being good at and faithful at your vocation. Parenting is one of those vocations that, you know, it causes you to pull away from lots of other social things you might do sometimes, but raising kids that understand the meta narrative and love Jesus is an important calling. You see you see people gravitate <coughs> to people that do lead lead a godly life. People will sometimes if the Holy Spirit's moving, yeah, yeah sure. And if it's true in nature and everything. Sure. Like, I think. So then what then I have on our second page. Huh? I can't, I can't it's ten six twenty. It is. It's standing still. So, I mean, we are in this interesting place. I mean, and so what then, what are we to do? And, and I, I do advocate for a radically God-centered life. That when we talk about, you know, we started the first week that everything is to be the glory of God. When, when, I, when we start talking about what the point of us being here, it is to glorify God, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That there is this radical God-centeredness to our lives. That, and I don't, I don't do this like I'd like to, so I, I don't want to sound arrogant like, well, when I get up, but I want to get up and go carry mail and say, and, and be able to say, I'm doing this because, you know, I don't have to find my value in a vocation or some special job. I'm faithful at the work that God has for me because I love my family, because I want God to be honored in me being faithful in my vocation. So that means I go and I walk in the rain and I hate it because I get soaking wet. But I'm glad to have a vocation that provides for my family. And, and, and God is more valuable to me than, I don't know, what having some other dream job or, you know, whatever else. Or getting to take the day off or I don't even know what I would do. But, you know, that there's this radical God-centeredness that, and that I'm carrying mail and don't tell the post office this. But that I'm trying to look around to see who do I run across. I run across a lot of people in a day. I see the city boys 20 times a day. You know, and... and, and <laughs> but, you know, but, but, I mean, there isn't a guy working for the city that I don't talk with when I see and that I don't have, that I'm not building relationship with and don't tell them this. But, you know, there's a desire and then I sound like I'm being subversive if I get sneaky. But, you know, but, but I'm, pra- I'm praying there that, that be, I'm in this interesting position, walking through people's yards, talking to them at the door, seeing them out at their jobs. I'm wanting to build a relationship so that if God would open a door for the gospel to be spread, I want to be available for that. I want to be in that opportunity. And so, you know, there is a radical God-centeredness and gospel-centeredness to what we're left here to do. Getting to my second page. So, so what then? What do we see Jesus doing in his people? And there's three things. It's an alliteration. Please, is that not fancy anybody else? <laughs> I didn't even go to college and I yeah, can do an alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> Prince. Oh, that's a bad one. Well, the same letter, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, and they're all U-D. And then a, like a S-H are different. Those aren't alliterations. Those aren't. No, right. because it's you got the sh. So it's captured, comforted, compelled. Sounds good. That's See? alliteration. And I, and I think the ED, see, I had to go ED, captured, comforted, compelled. Maybe not. I don't know. It's close. So it isn't right. Whatever. I didn't go to college. So, but, but, but the church is captured by the gospel. It's comforted by the gospel. It's compelled by the gospel. 
So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's capturing people by the gospel. The church goes forward by the declaration of the gospel. It's not a social club. It's not about, you know, it's where we go because we want our kids to, you know, have a friend group or whatever. The church is a gathering of those who are caught by the gospel. That, you know, and this is where we read in Luke 24, right, that Jesus says that he wants for repentance and the forgiveness of sin to be proclaimed throughout all the nations. Peter, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, they are, um, they are convicted, they're cut to the core, and they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So there's this, there's this radical um, gospel-centeredness in every area of the church. We are a people that are gathered because we have been caught, we've been captured by the gospel. Um, two big ideas, I've got down there A and B. I got in trouble because I had one and two, and Darla said it should be A and B in a proper outline. <laughs> but A and B, that, that, that two realities, the seriousness of sin, that when you're caught by the gospel, sin is serious. That the gospel is not, you know what, everybody sins, so I guess no big deal anymore. No, we, we see throughout all of church history, all of this New Testament, you get it here into these epistles of Paul that he writes, Peter, it's, it's taking seriously sin. That, that sin is a transgression against God's will. It is, it is an offense against him. It is an attack against him. It's rebellion against him. And it's to be taken seriously. So the church is never one that's just about, you know what, it doesn't matter. We, we are very much a people, and this is where... You know, Christianity can get confusing to people because they just see us all as a bunch of judgmental hypocrites who, you know, say you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do this, shouldn't do this. Well, in one sense, we aren't called to judge the world per se, but we are called to judge those within the church and, and say sin is serious. And that the scripture says it's serious and you should sin, you should seek to kill sin, get rid of it. But it also has the seriousness of sin and the sufficiency of the Savior that we're holding up these two big ideas, that sin is serious, you should hate it, you should run from it, and we have a sufficient Savior to rescue you from your sins and to forgive you of your sin. So it isn't, um, oh, Jesus will save me from it, so I'll do whatever I want. No, sin is still serious, and we seek to kill it, but we are radically captured by the gospel, which is that Jesus rescues us out of our sin, that our sin is forgiven. In the cross, and so the church is the gathering of those that are captured by the gospel. Make sense? The seriousness. Jesus, what would Jesus is talking about? Take out, cut your hand off, or mm. pluck your eye out. No doubt, it's sinning. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious. Yeah. Did he literally mean cut your hand off, take your eye out? <laughs> That's always a fun question to ask because sometimes you say it, people think, "What? Is, what do you mean?" But. Uh, it, it definitely is communicating to you the seriousness of if, if, you're, if you're given to steal, he say, cut off your hand. It is better for you to enter into heaven without a hand than to with both hands go into hell. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, like in lust or something like that, he says, pull it out. It's better for you to go without an eye into heaven than with both eyes plummet into hell. And so now we have the issue of... Um, does cutting off your hand make you not covet? No. You're still going to covet. I think so. I think... There's all sorts of issues that you get into that 
the physical removing doesn't really provide, doesn't really give you um, the out, the heart change. But there is a seriousness to it that, you know, it's like, um, I mean, people talk about, you know, this, this thing here. These are wonderful. You want me to have cookie on the back of them. These are, the smartphones are great, right? But this is full of all kinds of idle and, I mean, obvious sin and also just idle, brainless wasting of your life. Sitting on Facebook for hours, you know, and just browsing it. That's just, it's just, it's mind-numbing idolatry, really. But, you know, you can either try to just say, you know, well, um, I'm going to cut back on my looking at it. Or you could really like say these at certain time, this goes on the counter and I don't touch it until tomorrow morning. And there's a cutting off if, um, you know, you have a television and, and things are coming through the television towards you. You could say, well, I'll just stop going to that channel. Or you could call a provider and cut those channels off, remove all access from stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's a seriousness that, that, yeah, that Jesus is communicating that you need, if it, if it takes radical, if you need to go back to a flip phone, go back to a flip phone. You know I mean? There's things like that, that he's saying that, yeah, take it seriously. So, I mean, that's a great passage on the seriousness of sin. Jesus took it very seriously. At the same time, sin is serious. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. And so none of these things in a repentant believer in Christ plunges us into hell, but through repentance, faith in the, in the work of Christ, we are satisfied. We are, we are reconciled to God. And this is the message that captures us in the church. This is the message that we're caught by, that draws us in. It also, the second point, is the message that comforts us. We're not just captured by the gospel. We, we hear that we're sinners and need to be saved. We're also comforted that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers as well. That we constantly need to be returning to the sufficiency of Christ for my salvation. Lots of times we think the gospel is the front door to the church. So like all the people out there that don't know Jesus need the gospel. And I say yes and amen, they do. And then everybody in the church who has been saved doesn't need to get to work, but needs to rest in the gospel. Uh, Paul, Paul writes, um, I have Ephesians 2 and Philippians 3 there. These are a couple of epistles that Paul writes to the church and they're just preaching the gospel to Christians. Um, so Ephesians 2, we could just quickly flip there. My only reason for bringing this up is that it isn't like, well, I get saved by Jesus and then I get to work for Jesus. It's, it's I'm saved by Jesus and my entire life anchors back to over and over and over again the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for me. Um, but here Paul is writing to them in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the church. And he reminds them says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then he brings the gospel. He reminds them of where they were, what they deserved. And he says, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's an already not yet statement. We're seated in heaven with Christ. 
but we're sitting right here right now anyway. Uh, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his men workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But so he comes to Christians and he reminds them of the gospel. Here's what's happened to your sins. Here's who Jesus is for you. Here's who you are on your own. And here's what God is for you in Christ. And he, they're not only just captured by the gospel, we're continuing in, comforted by the gospel. And the same thing there, Philippians 3 is kind of the same. But then moving quickly on to compelled. We are compelled then by the gospel. So let's just do the one. Let's do the 2 Corinthians 5. Back to your left. 2 Corinthians 5, this is this big chapter on <clears throat> reconciliation. We're caught by the gospel, captured by the gospel, comforted, continuing in the gospel, and we're also compelled by the gospel. This is what the gathering of the church is. So this is verses 11 through 21. So let's read it. Since we know what it means to give the Lord, we strive to help people accept the truth about us. God knows what we really are and we hope that in your hearts you know too. We are not trying to prove ourselves to you again, but we are telling you about ourselves so you will be proud of us. Then you will have an answer for those who are proud about things that can be seen rather than what it is in their heart. If we are out of our minds, it is for God. If we have our right minds, it is for you. For love of Christ controls us because we know that one died for all, so all have died. Christ died for all of us to live, but he lived did not continue to live for himself. He died for them and was raised from the dead to prove that he lived for him. 16. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassador, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is just clearly laying out kind of key passages there. 14 and 15, love of Christ compels us. We concluded that one has died for all, that for all have died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then... Right there where Eric read, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the church is captured by the gospel, it's comforted, continuing in the gospel, and it's compelled by the gospel that there is a world out there, there's neighbors out there. You know, to forget the world, there's a community in Ringgold County out there that needs to hear the gospel message, that hasn't heard it in the various places that they've been, Maybe never entering a church, you know, or entering a being in a church that doesn't teach the biblical gospel, and 
we're, we're imploring them be reconciled to God through the gospel. We're captured, controlled, comforted, continuing in, and compelled by the gospel to know him and to make him known. I had another passage down there. But this is where the church is to be at. The already not yetness fully accomplished in Christ, yet the work moving forward. Uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where he says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in my name. That there's this commissioning that then goes out for the gospel to spread through his people. He's chosen to do it through his church. Why? I don't know. We, we get the blessing of being involved in his work of the spread of the gospel. Sometimes you think, well, you know what? It'd been a lot easier if Jesus would have just hung out. And then we could have, once TV came along, we could have broadcast him and we all could just get on the internet and just listen to him talk. And boy, that'd been, but this is the way. We're not to quibble with God in his ways. This is what he's chosen to do, is to work through the church, is to work through his people, capturing them by the gospel, comforting them with the gospel when they still go out and sin. The gospel is for them and compelling them by the gospel. So, where we've got to sit with this is, is this the description of me? And, and I'm not doing my job if I don't press this on each one of us and press this on myself. Am I caught by the gospel? Am I comforted? Is the thing that comforts me at night, at night not that I'm doing my religious duties or whatever, or trying to be a decent person, is my comfort that, that Christ has rescued me, that my sins are forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ? Am I compelled by the gospel? Is my desire for the people that I meet that they would be saved and come to know Jesus? Is this me? This is, Jesus is real. He really died, rose to life, ascended to heaven, gave his commission, is capturing, is comforting, and is compelling his people with the gospel. And, and where do we sit with that? And, and coming to, in the, in the same way, lifting both of these things up, the seriousness of sin, you know, of these are all the ways I'm falling short in this performance. Because if, if any of you say, yes, Darren, I am, I've been captured, I'm totally comforted, and I am compelled, you know, none of us have got it nailed down. That's why, that's why the gospel is so beautiful. We return to him, we say, you know, we confess our sin. I am falling short in this. I am serving myself. I thank you that there's forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. Give me your Holy Spirit that I be empowered to live for you and for your glory. That's where we land. Three minutes. So what thoughts, questions, comments before we pray? I have one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we live in this world where, I'm not trying to make it come back, but like equality, right? So you know, gay rights are coming out. You don't, we live in a world where there's just so many different things going on in so many different cultures and oh. so many different religions and so many different beliefs. And we're just taught, I mean, society teaches us to be polite and to not step on their toes, right? You yeah. know where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Maybe, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, we're certainly taught to um, um, never offend. Yes. Politi and political so, correctness. People get offended when you speak. There's no gain around the offense of the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's not popular today to tell people that they're sinners and that they're wrong. I mean, and. and your, your opinion is your opinion, but that's where I'm coming back to Jesus is not just an abstract theory. 
when you do it, Jesus is, I'm saying he's a real person who, this is the way that he said life was whatever. His, he claimed to be God, <laughs> claimed to be the only way to God, only way to reconciliation through faith in him, repentance of sin. This is what he claimed. And he rose from the dead. What do you do with that? Is it lying? Fine. Okay, so you want to, but you know, but there's no way around the offense. There just isn't. And so my only desire is that they're offended about the right things. So that's the caution that I always have, you know, because people immediately, if, if they want to be offended, there are a million of Christian groups out there to be offended by. I mean, you don't, I mean, first one, Westboro Baptist comes up. Well, you're all, you know, you know, so that comes up. But, but you want to be offended by the right things. And the right offense is that God created this. This is the meta narrative, and that's why we're going through this. It's the right offense. I feel I feel like it's the biblical offense. It's not me just trying to beat you up. It's saying you're a sinner. God created this world. You owe Him 100% allegiance and honor and glory, and you fall short of it every day. You're seeking after your own satisfaction and all these things is sinning against the righteous God. And because he created you, what you deserve is his justice. <laughs> I mean, and that's offensive. <laughs> but there's, but what, what else you good? I mean, either, either you're going to sell them universalism, which I don't think is the biblical gospel, that, well, it's all going to be okay, everyone's saved. Jesus doesn't talk that way. So, no, there's no way around the offense. Coming to mind, like your when your husband's don't go or whatever, isn't there a passage that says something about that? Like, or yeah, there is. What is it? Um, it's First Corinthians four, five. I mean, yeah. it's something that blessed is the woman who or whatever. Oh no, it, it, it mean, that there that through a, that through your love of Christ, they essentially would be one. Is essentially the um, is what they're talking about. Is that through your. Um, it's talking about, it's really going along the lines of being married to an unbeliever is what it's talking about. Um, One, I don't know, I, and Melissa and I, we've had our own disagreements over this because we just were both raised different in, in the way that the church, or the traditions of the churches. So we had our arguments there with baptism and mm-hmm. confirmation type stuff and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, but the thing, you know, you can always work through them, but I remember being up, and we had people join our church, and I remember my dad visiting with them. He's like, just, well, what, what are you afraid of? Well, really, what, what is so offensive at, you know, at the church? What, it, what, what can, what, what can, how can it hurt you that mm-hmm. come and believe in Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, how can we get that word out to mm-hmm. people, you know? Well, I think, I mean, yeah, we are, as sinners, very proud and very self-reliant. I mean, I just heard a song on the radio about how much I love me. It is just ridiculous. And we're in love. <laughs> it's disgusting. But anyway, I won't go into it. No, it wasn't. It's a new pop song. It's just Anyway, it's awful. But, you know, we're in love with ourselves. And what the gospel comes and tells you, you're not that great. Well, nobody likes to hear that. And so, you know, I mean... Just, you know, I mean, and a lot of the positive affirmations you see on Facebook and stuff like that are all talking about believing in yourself. And the, the Christian message is you believe in yourself, you've got a lot of problems. You know, it, it, this belief in yourself, you're a fallen sinner. 
it's hopeless. Uh, Gentry, 1 Corinthians 7 is the passage. Um, verse 12, it says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Don't be deterred by that. that well, we could talk about what that means, but this is him talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband, ah, this is just what the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner, is that the one I was looking for? Oh, here it is, verse, verse 16. For how do you know, wife? Rather you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, rather you will save your wife. So and then he goes on into living as you are called. And that there is this um, there is this power in him being won over by your own faithfulness and love of Jesus. You know, is that what you were kinda asking? I yeah. mean there's there might be different a different passage that I was thinking of. That didn't, that didn't, that didn't, I think there is two, but but it's in all of these things and and that's where i mean with when your question tests and it applies for all of us i mean you just want to be offended about the right thing here's the deal and and what i i love the church gathering but it does come out in learning how to have gospel conversations and comfortable with just the kind of language that takes sin seriously, and really believes in the sufficiency of a Savior. And, and what I have found as I've gone around different churches, I think that vocabulary of that type really doesn't exist very well. I mean, how many conversations do you sit around, even with believers, and talk about the goodness of Christ? Talk about the seriousness of, of my sin. And I've been in church all my life. And it hasn't been for very many years that, that I'm actually in groups like this. We're talking about this issue. And so what happens is... We just get better at talking about these issues. I get better at talking about Jesus. I get better at talking about the seriousness of sin so that when I'm in these other relationships with other unbelievers, my language has changed a little bit. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm more fluent at communicating in my own life how I view sin, how I view Jesus. And I'm able to spot some different holes in, in where they're relying on their own false god and whatever. Well, so I would say how you communicate it has been very... Yeah. The, the, yeah. It's... I feel very... Like, your... What you brought up, your points and stuff, I feel like I'm getting. You know, you grew up in this church and everything like that. And your point that you brought out to me was that I never looked at was is just those simple Ten Commandments. I've never looked at it from that perspective of you're, they're never attainable. Like, I, I just... That... It's like I missed that whole concept. All those years growing up in this church, mm -hmm. that is, right. where was that? Why did I miss that exactly. step? Why am I here at right. age 35 right. and mm -hmm. never knew, you're never you're never going to do it, Melissa. But, I mean, right. I just had that thought, this is what you grew up right. Right. I told Kristen, this is embarrassing, but like, I told Kristen the very first night when we were home together, and I said, for the first time in my life, I am like really... Focus. Like, I feel like for the first time in my life, someone is sitting down and saying, open the Bible, turn to the verse, mm -hmm. make, make you understand it. I've never, like, I've put my time in 
well, not for the last couple of years, but all my life, almost every Sunday, I just right. put my time in. I feel like I, I, and that's I, it. And I am so happy that you did this because I feel like for the first time I'm understanding things. This is this is all about Jesus. I mean, and I, and I think that church so easily becomes about you being better people. Uh-huh. And and I, and I think that what pushes a lot of people off is that they think all we are about is you better do all these things and then don't do all these things. And and Christianity does have sin. But it isn't. It isn't this slavery to don't do the. It's it's this. It's freedom. It's what freedom. Here's what freedom looks like. But anyway, I don't want to go. My point. This is this is about Jesus. This is about a savior. This is about our rescue. And so when it comes to I, I like you're saying, a lot of people have a conception, and I bet people that we know who are unbelievers isn't because they haven't been exposed to some type of Christianity. I think they've probably been exposed to. What what's called? If you can look, look this up, if you want to, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And this researcher, we're going way over time tonight. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> this this researcher, Christian Smith, surveyed twenties, uh, teens, whatever across the nation about what they believed. And this is this is moderate Muslim, Christian, Jewish, all across the board. And he came up with this religion, which is which is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it was moralistic. It's moralistic in that essentially God wants you to be good people. It's therapeutic in that essentially God's there to help you feel better. And so when you feel bad, that's what God's there for. And deism is just this idea that God's pretty much removed. He doesn't have much connection to anything. He set everything in motion and just has kind of walked away and is watching it. And people that you run into that they see Christianity, they think we're talking moralistic therapeutic deism. Be a good person. Or God's going to shake his finger at you. It's all about just feeling warm fuzzies. instead of And, and God isn't really that involved. Instead of what, what I'm trying to press here, what I think the Bible pushes on us is that this is a radical, radical thing going on here of a Savior rescuing sinners. And, and so a lot of that, when it comes to, when I talk about defending them over the right things, is just learning what your own faith really is and how to communicate it well. And we're all learning daily how to do this better, how to communicate it more clearly, understanding it more clearly so that they get offended over the right things. <laughs> so that it isn't me just saying, you got to quit these five things. It is, you know what? You can try to quit those five things, but you're just going to trade those five idols for a different five idols. You can try to quit girls for the next six months of your life. Girls aren't your problem. You're your problem. And what you need is not the right girl. You need Jesus. You need rescued. You need... People are searching for their joy and their satisfaction. And they're searching it in a thousand lesser things. They're searching it through um, either the gathering of lots of things or hiding away from things. <laughs> that my satisfaction is in, is in hiding away from things. Or it's trying to gather all of these things instead of that which is supremely satisfying, God, which is ours, who is ours in Jesus Christ. But we have kids over there. Let me pray. Father, I just I'm so grateful for this conversation with these people and 
I thank you for Jesus. And when I sit here, it is not on a high horse. Um, I'm the rescued one here. I, what Christianity is, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's, that's Christianity to me. That's who you are to me. This isn't my enlightened position, <laughs> helping those who are not as smart as me figure these things out. This is, I'm a beggar, and I need a rescuer, and I'm, I need, I'm searching for an all-satisfying Savior, and this is who you are. So God, I, I pray that you'd help us to see you like this. I pray you'd help us to, to go to our knees in repentance over our sin and our rebellion and, and, and place our faith in you, come to you as that beggar so that our conversations with our with those that we love and those that we care about is not one of, of, of higher position talking down to someone, but it's, it's, it's camaraderie. I'm a beggar just like you, and Jesus is the bread of life. You are the all-satisfying God and Savior of ourselves, of the world, of all of humanity. And help us, God, to get fed there ourselves so that we can encourage and invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us, God. Be with us. Seal these things in our hearts. Draw us near to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.